Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading researchers, authors, and clinicians discussing issues in attachment theory. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please visit tkcchaddock.org. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, joining you here from Chaddock. Today, we are going to be continuing our conversation with Michael Trout. The topic that we have been speaking with him about is what's missing in clinical practice today. Michael is an amazing clinician and mentor of mine. Anybody who knows me very well at all knows how important his work has been to me in my own development as a therapist, um, beginning with um, his early work, um, just working with adults in state mental health centers, um, and then also what he's probably most known for is his work in the areas of infant mental health having studied with selma freiberg herself so he has since also moved on to doing some work in the arena of foster care and adoption he has a wealth of knowledge about pre and perinatal psychology I know you're going to enjoy this continued conversation I'm having with him. So please stay tuned and the next part of this interview series will be coming right up. The Knowledge Center at Chaddock is a tremendous resource for therapists, educators, business and organizational leaders, and anyone curious about trauma-informed care. At tkcchaddock.org, you'll find information about registering for our professional development courses like the Developmental Trauma and Attachment Institute, Adult Attachment Interview Workshops, or the Nonprofit Leadership Academy. You'll also find a library of Chaddock publications in the TKC store, including the entire Michael Trout book and video collection. Visit tkcchaddock.org for videos, articles, workshops, and podcasts in the arena of attachment and trauma-informed care. Michael, we're here together again to continue our series, our little mini series here on what's missing in clinical practice today. And one of the uh, final things here that we want to talk about, I mean, we've talked about the um, presence and holding, following and mentalizing, passion for discovery, endless curiosity, modesty about diagnosing and you gave an amazing example of, of ignoring a diagnosis that you went in with with this chi- with a child and discovering something very different was going on um, and then hunting for narratives is how we wanted to wrap this up tell us what we should try to remember and hold in mind about that well, I have to say that this is was probably the most exciting evolution, if not breakthrough, in my uh, years of work um, to discover this whole idea of narrative, which was fairly new to me a quarter century ago. 
the the summary of it is in some ways nothing new on the surface we're all used to looking for stories we're often fascinated by stories and really psychotherapy even with children much less with their parents or any other grown-up is often about acquiring stories or evoking stories so that's nothing new what is new or i found new is the discovery that what is most meaningful about stories is not the sequence of events, not the facts, for example, but what the patient, and here I include even babies, not to mention their mothers and fathers, what uh, patients made of the events, the sequence, the, the data, so to speak, the facts, the storyline they uh, developed, trying to explain, often in the case of young children and babies and toddlers, desperately put together to try to explain. Um, a child would, for example, experience um, a parent going away often in a drunken stupor, for example, or maybe even moving away or leaving the child. And the child can't be expected to just tolerate that, but he also can't be expected to face the facts. It's too much to say, my mommy left me because she wanted to go play with others and get drunk. Or my daddy left me because he doesn't, he doesn't like us anymore. I, I think he hates me. I think he hates mom. That's, that's too much. It's too painful. So the child will develop another kind of story. So now the mom, mommy left me because I touched myself down there. And that child will have difficulty with sexual adjustment for the rest of childhood, often. Terrified that he will be found out to be obsessed because now the story grows, the narrative grows, gets bigger and more scary. Oh, I touch myself all the time now, and I got to watch it. Oh, but I really want to. Oh, no, I can't. If I do, someone might, will leave me again. These, these narratives are the story we put together to explain the story that happened and make it come out better, more survivable, maybe give us more of a sense of control. Because if, if my mommy left me because I touched myself down there, well, it's easy. I can make her come back and never leave me again by never touching myself down there again. Um, or I, I yelled at my sister. Or I didn't pick up my room, so we'll say a school-aged child. Or a baby might even say, uh, I, I cried too much or I needed too much as part of his narrative. And so he will simply become a baby who doesn't cry. And maybe even a baby doesn't need. And if we, if, by the way, if we imagine that babies and toddlers are incapable of such, such levels of mental activity to write narratives, we've, we've really missed the last couple of decades of research that teaches us that they can and they do, almost always unbeknownst to themselves, to be sure. It's not as if they will sit in a chair and tell us about this. Not even later, when they're verbal and much smarter and bigger, can they tell us about it. We, we have to discover these narratives. 
So, for example, uh, uh, jumping to a, a work with an adult, I just saw on the screen here and behind me this chair where sat a woman who came to me because of a child, but got into talking to me about her adult relationships. And one of the phrases she used uh, often when describing how many men she had had sex with uh, and how disconnected from all of them she felt, one of the phrases she would use is, you know, I guess I can never get enough. And then there would be a pause, just like there was right now between you and I, as I tried to figure out what in the world does that mean? You mean you can never get enough sex? Yeah, yeah. Well, is that really what you mean? What, what, what does it mean you can't ever get enough? Oh, I don't know. I said, I'll be darned. I just remembered you mentioned to me that you were quite obese as a child. Oh, yeah, I hated those years. And she'd go off into tangents about how fat she was and how much teasing she got. And then the huge weight loss when she was an adolescent. And that it's been that way ever since. Roller coaster, weight gain, weight loss, weight gain, weight loss. And then there was a pause just like this, as both of us wondered whether this I can never get enough might refer not only to men and sex, but to food. And if that's the case, where in the world could that come from? I'm a healthy child. My mom loved me. Why she, she, I'm, I know she fed me well. I can remember meals and so on. And she would go on and on about that. And I'd ask her if she remembered anything at all about mother, her mother's stories about the pregnancy for her. And she said, well, I guess the biggest one is how proud she was. Oh, how proud she was. You mean of you? You're talking about after you got born? No, no, before I got born. She was very proud that she wore the same size jeans when I was born as she wore before she got pregnant for me. I said, why? I don't understand. Why would she be proud of that? Well, she just thought it was very, very cool that she could be slender and beautiful and the baby in there would be hardly noticeable. I said, hardly noticeable? Well, what was happening to the baby in there? And she had never, ever thought about that. She'd never thought that for her mom to be able to wear the same size jeans meant that somebody had to go underfed, if not virtually starve, and that somebody would be her, who's sitting in my office 25 years later saying, I can never get enough. That's how we piece together the narrative, the narrative that someone can build to try to make sense of their experience in life. The narrative for her was, I didn't get, I think, I think, I don't, nobody knows. I never, I couldn't get enough in while I was inside my mom. I have to get enough now. And that leads to overeating, which leads to obesity, which leads to embarrassment and teasing, which leads to weight loss, which leads to the cycle. And then when it came to relationships, it sounds like a huge leap across a very big gully, but it really isn't. To think I can't get enough food can be very similar to I can't get enough attention, men, cuddling, 
touch, sex. I can never be satisfied. I can never sigh and think, well, that was, that's, that's wonderful. That's enough. Hmm. So I want to talk for a second explicitly about these two things that you said within that evoking stories. So that that first word evoke, I think is such an important word and something that goes along with the curiosity and the clarifying questions. Yes. So because I, I, I'm trying to almost make this like explicitly a little bit skill based here, yeah. not technique, but that you didn't you slow it down when she said I can never get enough. Somebody could have just made an assumption. Oh, yeah, she she's talking about the sex, whatever. She's a sex addict. I don't know. Uh, but that's this curiosity, this wonder. Well, is that what she's saying? Let's not just jump to that conclusion. And that then evokes more of the story. Yes. And you're absolutely right. I love the phrase you used, slowing down. You're absolutely right that that's, a, that's the, an essential element of curiosity. And it shows in not only in the pace of questions, but even in how you're sitting in the chair your eye contact with the child or with the, the adult uh, that says, hmm, we're going to spend some time on that. Or I hope you'll tell me more. Or my goodness, I'm really interested in that. We show it in many ways, not just asking of more questions. But even when we do ask more questions, we, we pace them so as to indicate I'm not asking you this question so that you can give me the correct answer. I'm asking you this question because I'm really interested in you. Yeah, it's not it's not the next one on the form. Yeah. <laughs> Which by the way, I I hope gives every listener pause who's still carrying a laptop into a session and typing on it during the session with key phrases and key words and that sort of thing. We actually imagine that we can do assessment, uh, much less treatment, early intervention that way. And I'm convinced that we can't. Because you're not fully present, because it's a distraction, because all of the above. How would a parent possibly know that you're really interested in them when, you're, when you've got the laptop open and you're typing in answers um, and then looking at the next question, the, key, the prompt for the mm -hmm. next question, how can you, where would they ever get the idea that you're actually interested in more than a cursory look at their situation? Michael, do you take a lot of notes in your sessions and in, in other ways? In my head. Uh -huh. Do you write a lot of things down? During the assessment phase of an intervention, uh, which I define very loosely, maybe the first one or two sessions, maybe three or four, I'll often have a pad in my lap. I try to discipline myself to use it minimally because it's very uh, seductive. Once I start writing, I, I want to write more. Um, <laughs> but yes, I do take some notes during the assessment phase. I never write during 
uh, later, once once we're rolling. Until after the session. Until after the session, yeah. Okay, because... Um, and then were... for decades, I didn't write, I dictated. Remember those wonderful years when you could dictate <laughs> notes and there would be somebody called a secretary somewhere that would... Yes, yes. Well, well, because you, you are very um, good at remembering details of people's stories. So I just wanted to hear specifically how you go about that. And even that seems to harken back to your early training. Like, okay, they're gone. Now I write down everything that happened. You know, another skill sort of tip is that the extent to which we are able to retain not only a sense of the session, but the sequence and most of the content is directly related to how present we were for it. So if each time we ask a question, instead of thinking about nothing while we wait for conversation answers, we're thinking about the next question. Or if somewhere along the way that the parent is addressing whatever we've just asked, we we say, oh, I, I get it now. And they we go to our to our brains to develop a question for the next moment instead of listening to the rest of it. Um, we're not really present then. And we will not, I, I sympathize with people in this position. There's no way you can remember. People think it's magical when, when I can remember, or you can, lots of people can remember all of a session. Um, and it looks magical, but it's only really about whether we've been present. If you're not, you're sunk. And I really sympathize. You can sit at your at your computer for an hour after a session and still not be able to fill in details because you can't quite remember exactly what happened. Mm. You weren't there. That's a really good point. It's not it's not just about filling a paper. Um, we can probably find a way to do that using our SOAP or these different acronyms that you write case notes with. But but to really hold that story inside of you. And this is, you know, speaking of that, that's one of the things that <clears throat> the adult attachment interview really changed for myself and for our clinicians is now suddenly we held the story of the parent inside of us after giving and and even though it is a structured interview um it evokes a story that has often never been told before yes and we started to to realize how it enabled us to hold the history of the parent in the same because we were pretty good at holding the history of the child right you know we've heard it we have these big fat files we've you know heard from all these other people who've worked with them in our situation because they're often we're kind of the last stop for a lot of families so yeah like i would know at least as it was being told you know a lot what 
the child's history. But when we began to all, and that lived inside of me for each child that I worked with and was alive inside of me in the room when I was with them. But when I began to use the AI, now I had this whole other story inside of me very alive at the same time. And it changed everything. It changed what I said. It changed how I moved. It changed what I asked. It changed what I noted. I mean, it just, everything changed when I now held this other story. You know, I would, I would propose that one of the reasons so much changed that was invisible was that your, your curiosity had been ramped up to a fever pitch and you missed nothing while you were with the child because of that. Because mm-hmm. you're so intent on understanding the whole narrative, and you actually imagined that inside that child was a story, and you'd like to learn about it. If you sit down with a child and, and think, well, really, they're too young to, to have a story, and they're mm-hmm. certainly too young to tell a story, mm-hmm. then our, our interest lags. Mm-hmm. Yes. So I'm sorry, go ahead. You go ahead. Um, I was just going to suggest for listeners wondering how to make this practical. Yes. I found that one of the greatest helps in my work with foster and adoptive parents was helping them um, get comfortable with building a story in their own mind about the child, even when they didn't have all the facts. Most of the time, foster and adoptive parents, I find, don't have all the facts. They weren't given the facts, or for some reason, they just don't know what happened to the child before the child came to them. But they've been curious. And so my job sometimes is to um, support that curiosity to the point they're willing to start making up a story. Now, they don't want to make up facts, but they can make up ideas and maybe even make up a kind of a fairy tale. Maybe a fairy tale um, where the, the, key, the key figure has a slightly different name than the child, maybe even a different sex. Maybe even the key figure in the, in the story is a whale or a goldfish or a turtle something that will make the child not get too suspicious right away that that you're saying telling a story about him and it also relieves you of having to be right about the facts because you you don't have to be right you don't know them anyway Mm -hmm. and sometimes if parents are willing to to do that use their imagination that way and then sit with me and the child with the child and at least in my practice usually on their lap with a weighted blanket uh on him uh, and and the, they tell that story to the child. It's astonishing to me with what frequency the child, even children described as hyperactive, no way he'll ever sit still for this. He won't let you put a blanket on him. The child lies perfectly still and seems incredibly attentive to this crazy fairy tale their parents tell. So mom and I were, were thinking about before you were born, and we think it was a really uh, noisy place where you were. There was a lot going on in there. We think maybe 
we think maybe your mom didn't quite know how to feed you in there. Did you know that babies get fed in there by their mommies before they're... Well, anyway, we think she didn't. So we, we were thinking, what would it have been like if we could have fed her? Wouldn't that have been fun? We, mm. we weren't there. We didn't even know your mom, but we were thinking how fun that would have been if we had known your mom and we could make food for her and, and feed her like almost like she was a child. And then that would give her more food to feed you who was inside of her as a child and so on. Mm -hmm. That often leads, I find, to not only dramatically increased empathy on the part of the foster or adoptive parent, who has worked so hard to build this fairy tale that they've had to think about the child. And now they're suddenly imagining him in there, inside this place of this uh, drug-riddled mother, uh, the child. Anyway, they, they pictured that child. Mm -hmm. But they've also uh, allowed themselves to imagine what the result of that would have been for the child. Um, if, if the mother, for example, as I just suggested, was in fact on drugs, the child may have been experiencing a lot of metabolic changes that he couldn't control, couldn't understand, um, perceived, but only in an organic sort of way, not in a way that would allow him rational discourse with himself about what's happening. But now somebody's sort of describing what we imagine it could have been like in there for you. And so the parent is now more empathic, and the child is having, having the experience of somebody really sort of being with him back in that uterus that was such a lonely and kind of miserable and chaotic place. And he may say things like, I, I wish you were there. I wish you had been there, which is a shock to a foster or adoptive parent to hear that. Or the child may say, Maybe that's why I get so confused. Out of the blue, a child has shown no evidence of insight or even interest in any of this before will say something crazy like, I wonder if that's why I'm sometimes confused. Or well, one child said, used the word frazzled. He put his hand under the weighted blanket on his own tummy and said, did mommy's tummy hurt? from all those drugs? They said, well, honey, we don't know. He waited a little bit and he said, well, my tummy hurts, meaning right now, present tense. And then he said, is that why I feel so frazzled? Mm. It's actually put together an incredible link between his mother's drug use and his hyperactivity now, years later. Mm -hmm. So the point was merely foster and adoptive parents can do a great deal by messing with these stories, mm -hmm. never telling lies, never making up things, but making up enough of it to make it an interesting fairy tale and see where it goes. Yes. And my experience with that is... If you're on, you'll know you're on. And if you're off, you're off. And like you said, that becomes obvious too. Um, Go on to the next. Yeah. And, you know, so because um, it, 
it, it doesn't have to be directly their story, but I think the pieces that could be will resonate. You'll see it inside of them, the how they hold their body, their expressions, in this case, some words that, that the child said. Um, yeah, so finding those narratives. And so so much of what we understand today about clinical work is building a coherent autobiographical narrative. And that's exactly what was happening with that story you just described. What I would love to know, I don't think there's any science to do about this whatsoever now, but I'd love to know those children who had some of this kind of narrative therapy, the sort of work I just have described with their foster adoptive parents, do they have more coherent narratives to tell when they're 25? Hmm. Hmm. Well, we could use the AAI to, that's one way to measure levels of coherence. <laughs> so, yeah. So, well, Michael, thank you so much for this time. Listeners, probably, uh, even though we're wrapping up this series, I always like to try to invite Michael back, so hopefully this won't be the last um, of our talks, but I so appreciate everything that you've shared, Michael. It's so helpful for us to benefit from your experience and your wisdom. Thanks, Karen, for the invitation. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchaddock.org, or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts for future episodes. If you enjoy our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please visit tkcchaddock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory. 